Yeah, it's just not paid a lot of attention. So you need really, really big stuff to happen, like the Bessemer Drive or the Teamsters making a really large announcement like this. And it really helps uh, revive people's interest in the labor movement. Because I think a lot of people like right now, politically, whether they're a leftist or like a more liberal or even if they're just like a confused whatever, are like, you know, there's there's a moment happening. What are we going to do to to capitalize on this moment? <laughs> and it's like, well, you know, we should probably look towards the people who are organized in their workplaces first off. And then people are intimidated by that. They're like, oh, there's not a lot of good information on it. I don't know anybody who's doing a union drive, this and that. And it's like, yeah, well, the info, the info's out there. It's just kind of like poorly digested by yeah. our modern uh, uh, climate of journalism. Well, and additionally, one of the things that I've been noticing when, uh, you know, working with some comrades is that like, there is this kind of um, kind of background um, sense of impending doom, uh, especially yep. as we cover things like from the Biden administration. And and I literally asked um, my partner last night, is like, do, do you have kind of a sense of a impending doom? And then he'd like goes off about how Joe Biden is restructuring immigration and how people's new documents aren't matching up with the systems that bo- customs and border enforcement or whatever and how oh, okay. people are because of that that people are being offered to either be let in with a criminal tag next to their name or to go back even if they even if because their paperwork is new and up to date but the border is not yeah, they're just they're trying to find, you know, technocratic ways to to justify, you know, r- doing the same amount or ramping up deportation. So because oh, it's, yeah. I mean, it's, it's like everything with the Democrats where they're like, so we're just going to take these Republican policies, but then we'll lie to you about them. <laughs> right. Yeah. Great. They're not doing it out of spite. They're doing it out of some feigned sense of like, yeah. we don't know how to rotate immigration PDF. And mm-hmm. then that's their their reason for sending people home. Because, of course, I'm sure this is something that could be easily fixed with any amount of competent oversight and administration. But, yeah, like, yeah. that, those failures of administration are allowed and sometimes even encouraged because they allow them to more covertly deport people. That's crazy. I, wanna, I hadn't heard of that or thought about yeah, that before. And I want to be really clear about, like, what, what I mean by by with a criminal tag next to your name. It means that if they pick you up, you will basically be denied immigration status forever and you will mm-hmm. be put in one of those detention camps. And right. this is for people who have, pro- quote unquote, properly done their paperwork. That's fucked up. That's outrageous. Yeah. yeah. Um, so, yeah, there's a, <laughs> there's a little bit of a sense of impending doom. I, yeah. I do think, though, I don't know, I get frustrated kind of going the other way on that because I find, at least on the Internet, that there's a lot of people that have become incredibly invested in the idea that there is going to, in the very near future, be a singular moment of great upheaval that washes away all of the problems of the U.S. And I'm like, boy, Mm. I wish. Yeah, that would be be really great. I really wish that was about to happen, but maybe take a quick look around at some material conditions. And and that's why we need to do more union stuff. Yeah, silver bullets work really well on... What is it? Is it werewolves or is it vampires? I don't <laughs> it's care. Van- it's werewolves, yeah. Werewolves. Silver bullets work pretty well on werewolves, but like major geopolitical and social economic issues are not werewolves. <laughs> you know, like you don't there's not like one big great thing. Like if we if we had if we marched on the White House like this afternoon 
and establish and we set out we were like here's the new communist constitution it still wouldn't like fucking fix everything overnight <laughs> You know, it probably yeah, well, wouldn't and, even be super defensible in the in the near term. Well, and I just feel like it, it becomes this way for people to, like, justify not doing, you know, the slow, boring, long-term work of organizing in both right. unions and parties and other organizations because they're like, no, 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 the, 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 the Civil War is right around the corner and that's going to – I don't have to – I can just – I can watch some Twitch streams and and post about it, you know, voyeuristically, yeah. and and I, and I will get to I will get to observe the revolution streamed on Twitch. It's like that's not. Well, yeah, not I think how that the, in, I do think that like with more educated people in like what the material conditions are, that impending doom actually is a little bit more that that kind of feeling like they've already come for everyone else and I'm next. Yeah, sure. Yeah. Yeah. Well, there's, very, there's that, but then fair. there's also like the, the impending doom of like, Oh, if I want to do a revolution, I can't just get really good at shooting guns with my buddies. Right. I can't just study like even, even though it's scary, like the exciting parts of revolution, right? Like the tactics, the battles, the intrigue, the espionage, <laughs> like revolution is going to be a lot of answering emails. (laughs) It's going to be a lot of picking up the phone and talking to people. It's going to be a lot of really fucking boring lunch meetings Mm -hmm. and going over the minutes of really fucking boring lunch meetings. And Discord servers that ping you 20 times a day. Oh my god, (laughs) the endless fucking pinging and notification. I mean, like, wasn't that why um, Deleuze said that he didn't join the the Communist Party of France at the time? He said, yeah, there's like, there's too many meetings. I'm a very busy person and I don't want to have to go to multiple meetings a week. Uh, and I'm <laughs> like, you know, that that's almost in its own way. One of the biggest roadblocks to real mm-hmm. political change is like, it's a bother. It's a nuisance. It's an annoyance. You also, know? we're surviving right now. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Uh, do you want to do the intro, John? Well, you know, sp- speaking of that incredibly uh, <laughs> broad topic of conversation that we were handling at the beginning of the show, welcome to Work Stoppage, everybody. A very specific show that handles <laughs> labor news and workers' rights and movements and organizations related to those things. And in that very specific vein, we wanted to follow up with a Supreme Court ruling on a potential issue that we were talking about several episodes ago on episode 41 when we talked to Sam Knight about a case before the Supreme Court where a provision in California's labor relations allowing organizers very limited periods of access to farm owner property in order to organize agricultural workers was coming under fire. And apparently the Supreme Court of – is this the Supreme Court of the United States or of California? (laughs) The, the, the oh, U.S. This is, Supreme Court. This is, mm-hmm. Yeah, this is Justice John Roberts. He says, the regulation appropriates a right to physically invade the grower's property. He said <laughs> that allowing union organizers on private land amounts to a unconstitutional taking of their property without just compensation, which is like one of the most demented things I've ever read yeah, in my Yeah, just like a life. wild defense of private property rights and uh, like against workers' rights in, in right. that is, is very, like, I mean, not surprising coming out of the fascist United States. Right. I mean, that's almost one of the more frustrating aspects about this case is that 
this is kind of the ruling we expected to get on this, where uh, they basically said that this this provision that's been part of California's uh, you know Labor Relations Act and, and this this part, which was specifically prompted you know by the incredibly like long and, and arduous organizing efforts by agricultural workers, you know, led by like Cesar Chavez and, and other folks in California to, to just give them this tiny of like amount of access to help organize people. And even that is too much of an intrusion on the, the, the holy, you know, sanctity of private property in the United yeah. States. Well, it's a reinforcement of who really has rights. Like if you're a worker in a workplace, you don't have any rights. If you are a landowner, you are essentially landed gentry in this country. And as long as you stay on that land, you can exploit whoever you want in whatever manner you want. And they, cause that's the thing is like the idea is that it's an imposition, right? Like if you're losing whatever amount of time that your land is worth within that period of time when the union organizer comes in, talks to your workers or whatever. But like what this fails to consider, and this is, you know, me just being a stupid wonk. I know that this isn't really what matters to justice John Roberts, but what the court fails to consider is that as a worker, this is a service that is rightfully supplied to you by virtue of you being at your workplace, which technically legally is on paper, this offers you the same level of binding provision that being a landowner does with relevance to those rights. So, like, well, you know, in, in, this is constitutional. Like, it's constitutional to let union organizers come onto the property. But regardless of whether or not it's constitutional, because that's not what Roberts is really ruling on here, it should be absolutely allowed. And it's something that we need to fight for. Yeah, and. The f- it's honestly like always shocking to me with cases like this when there's, it's so obvious, like, you know, the, 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 the interests on the two sides of it, you know, right. you have the vast majority of the people's interests on one side and the, the, the interests of this tiny, tiny group on the other. And, and that they're going to come out to the, you know, the, this court and argue that this is a horrific imposition on them when like the provision in the, in the California uh, labor relations act isn't like you have to let union organizers come on your property and organize your workers whenever you want. It's It's literally, yeah, it's like they can come on at these very specific, very short amount of times that are outside of business hours. So it's not, you know, taking away from any of those, that critical labor time. And they had to give prior notice and the landowner could deny the, the access during a specific time. So the idea that like with all of these qualifiers that were already built into the bill to make it easier for the landowners, the idea that this was some, you know, d- incredible imposition on them that it right. was it was really going to damage their business in any way is completely yeah. ludicrous like no one can possibly believe that and, and, and so seeing this really just makes that even more frustrating and what i what i also want to like make make a little bit of sense is as how this is a bastardization of what property rights are uh because of the way that you are associated with your labor and how they, it is how you are sustained, how you should have the right to union representation. Um, and really what the state is doing here is saying once again that the, the private property rights and not in, because they're, and they're conflating it with personal property because private property should have the same issue of like, you know, they're saying that these 
union organizers are basically like a military coming in to yes. be housed yeah. inside of of your property because uh, right. obviously we we've been we've come out of what was it it's the fourth amendment right the, the, the third amendment rights third, third, third <laughs> yeah. amendment rights yeah we we have a whole we did a whole bit about it before and you know it's very very good to have that sort of thing when it comes to like your personal property because we don't want a state invading you know your house that you live in but this is not like the place where the boss lives this is actually the place where the workers live a lot a lot of the time they're literally housed in these places and this is actually stopping the workers from inviting union organizers into their own house yeah well i mean like if 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 i can put on my marx via sterner hat for a second uh, you know, what this whole thing misses and I think what uh, American jurisprudence misses in general is that like your labor is your property. Like you, had, right. you should have property rights based solely on the virtue of the fact that you are personally spending your labor, your personal property and private property for that matter on this this work project at this land on this time clock, whatever the case may be, you know. Well, and, and I mean, uh, the... The owners of these, you know, these agricultural, these big agribusiness folks that have been pressing this case, they make the argument that, oh, this isn't an imposition on the union because we live in 2021. You can just organize on the internet and via smartphone when, again, they know that they are specifically hiring, you know, the the poorest and, and most oppressed folks they can find, oftentimes migrant workers who oftentimes, you know, don't speak English and oftentimes don't even necessarily speak Spanish. We'll speak like a lot of, you know, indigenous languages from places, mm-hmm. you know, in the Southwest or in, in, in Central American countries, which means that if you're trying to organize via text only, instead of actually, you know, being able to meet face to face, that makes that so many levels more difficult. And that's cause that's the thing there. It, this case has nothing to do with, with like, Oh, this being an imposition, this is taking something. It's, it's purely, we need to try using roundabout justification to make organizing agricultural workers illegal the way that it functionally is in most of the country. Well, and they have to know that the workers can't be on their phones at work, right? Right. So it's not like there's on-the-clock organizing that can happen online. That's certainly disallowed. And a lot of these workers are housed on the property that they Mm -hmm. work on, so they don't have an opportunity to go seek these resources elsewhere. Right. Yeah, and additionally, I mean, like, the, if you're equating, like, online organizing is, is ridiculous. A text message is not the same as, like, a Star Wars-style hologram council. You know, like, where you, where you <laughs> yeah. uh, for, uh, you know, are maybe feeling a lot more of that in-personness, that, that actual connection with other people, the ability to demonstrate things visually or anything like that. I mean, a text message is not like that at all. Even right. a voice conversation over the phone is not like that at all. Well, and, and even and, within the internal yeah. logic of this, like it, you could argue that like if they're not going to allow the union organizers onto the property, that they have to allot time for them to engage in like face-to-face video calls with the organizers or something. But even that already feels like losing because that's not really the issue that Roberts or the interested business parties in this are pursuing at all, and it's not the right avenue to fight it. We need to have a broader coalition uh, and ideological base of support for agricultural workers in general. It's not about the technicality of the law here. So once again, we are coming out on the side of abolishing the Supreme Court because, honestly, fuck this this non-democratic organization. Yeah, Yeah. and... And there was a quote here from uh, a, a law professor at Cornell, uh, Beth uh, Leone, who 
directs a farm worker legal assistance clinic there who said, quote, the agricultural industry has one of the nation's highest percentages of hired child labor, undocumented work, human trafficking, and workplace injury and fatality, including deaths from COVID-19. And the court has now placed another obstacle in the way of an of extremely vulnerable American workforce. Mm-hmm. Yeah, go back and listen to the Seneca Foods one again. <laughs> yeah. Well, what? on that note, we have another uh, follow-up, or not exactly well, a follow-up, but a group of people that we've talked about before, the Cook County Nurses. This is the county that uh, Chicago is in. The speaking of vulnerable Chicago workers. Area. Yeah, exactly. And they have gone on strike. Uh, to demand better pay and health care premiums. So over 2,700 Chicago area nurses and support staff at Cook County Health went on strike to demand better wages and working conditions while demanding the county stop its attempts to raise health care premiums. The National Nurses Organizing Committee and SEIU Local 73, which rep- respectively represent 1,250 nurses and 1,500 medical aides, therapists, and technicians, clerks, housekeepers, and food service workers, and patient transporters at CCH have each been in contract negotiations with the county since last fall. So this is not a, uh, a short-term issue. This actually spans back to uh, the end of last year. Yeah, one of the things about this strike that immediately struck me as like really interesting is is that that alliance that that is really at the mm-hmm. heart of this, which is you know the, the the nurses union working together with the SEIU, who represents you know a lot of the the non nursing staff at these hospitals, because obviously like even though these nurses you know want and deserve, you know, all the benefits that they're fighting for as, as, you know, healthcare employees during the middle of a pandemic, it, you can't, it's difficult to, you know, go on an extended term strike. Cause these people, right. like they don't want to, they don't want to hurt their patients. Like, it's not about that. It's, it's about making the, you know, fucking the County actually give these people the, the benefits and, and, and wages that they deserve for doing this incredibly vital service. And so you've got the nurses have gone out on a 24-hour strike. But the rest of the SEIU folks who came out on strike in solidarity intended just, you know, go on a standard open-ended strike. Yeah, Yeah. and they had a quote in here from a social worker at one of the hospitals who said, our biggest concerns are around wages, but more than that, healthcare premiums, which they're trying to double for many workers here in the county who have worked throughout the entire pandemic. And they had another one in here from a a housekeeper at the, this is at uh, Stroger Hospital uh, in Chicago, uh, uh, Sylvia Kaiser, who has worked there for three decades, who caught COVID-19 twice from her her ward and has basically come out and saying that, that quote, this makes me feel very disrespected because I'm not asking you to give me something I want. I'm asking you to give me and my coworkers something we worked for. Right. Yeah. Absolutely. And it's, well, it's and great to see this solidarity between the uh, nursing staff and the various uh, support staff and, and technicians and uh, right. other supportive staff. Because like I know hospitals, one of the reasons they can be difficult to organize in, not just because of the sensitivity of like the application of the labor power and how critical it is to the patient's health, but also because they're incredibly hierarchical, striated, stratified environments yeah. with management and administration at the top and uh, doctors and surgeons typically receiving much, much better and uh, more reliable compensation than the nurses and everybody below them. 
Yeah, and this uh, this coalition building is one of the things that is was done really well in Chicago under another example, which was when the teachers union right. union was made really strong. Yep. And I, I'm guessing that they're probably kind of looking at that and seeing how the teachers went from having almost no power to doing community organizing to the point where they are one of the strongest teachers unions in the nation. And, mm-hmm. and having that example so close to them uh, really gives them like enough incentive to be like you know we can do that we can do that here we can get all of the healthcare professionals uh together and hopefully they are able to do that across um like the region of chicago uh and cook county because it's going to be necessary if they're going to actually demonstrate that power and build those those um methods of making sure that you don't have to go on strike for weeks and weeks and weeks because what you need is you need to show the power immediately so that the the concessions are made by management because um, if you really you, want to be able to do a 24-hour strike and make it effective you're gonna need to actually have that level of power yeah and one of the the frustrating things about this 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 attempt you know to to double these workers healthcare premiums in the middle of the pandemic is that uh, unlike a lot of these uh, stories that we cover, uh, I mean, this is a strike against facilities that are run by the county itself, like not by a private entity, but supposedly, you know, by the, the, the government that is supposed to be, you know, running this for the public good and yet right. thinks that the best way to do that is to make it so that all of their employees are as impoverished as possible while yeah. they're trying to keep people safe during a, a once in a lifetime pandemic. Yeah, and if you ever need to talk to people who maybe aren't like as so left-leaning or socialist or whatever about this kind of stuff, it's important to remind them that like the quality of patient care at these facilities is directly proportional to the quality of care that the employees feel they that is taken of them Mm -hmm. while they are working like if you want these it's easy for a conservative or somebody who's anti-union for whatever reason to say like okay but they shouldn't be abandoning their patients for 24 hours it's like the management and the administrators should not be consistently abandoning their patients by abandoning the employees who care for them you know that's always the primary focus absolutely yeah, and there's a there's a quote in here from the the president of the the SEIU Local 73 talking about the um, Cook County president uh, Tony Preckwinkle, who I found out is also the chair of the Cook County Democratic Party. Ooh, um, of course, and also and so has saying, one of the funniest last names of all time. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so, uh, County President Tony Preckwinkle, in, in this quote, has turned her back on essential workers who risk their lives and their families' lives during the pandemic. It appears that she is punishing local 73 members for standing up for themselves, their families, and their communities. And and so, what they mean by that is not just you know the attempt to double these healthcare premiums to not increase wages to, to not better working conditions by, by, you know, hiring more people so that people can work reasonable hours. But also the way that the County has responded to these organizing efforts by these workers, which is by, you know, that tried and true union busting tactic, bringing in scabs because yep. they, the, um, these folks reported to, uh, in these times that, the Cook County has been relying on temp workers getting through staff agencies like Snap Nurse. And since they knew that this walkout was upcoming, they have been aggressively trying to bring in even more temps to work as strike breakers. And, and in these times, uh, was able to get 
a hold of a like mass text that was sent out by this, you know, uh, temp company that's serving as a, a scab provider here, Snap Nurse. Uh, that referenced, quote, a pending strike notice in Chicago. The text message explains that strike breakers will be paid between $4,600 and $6,500 per week, which is more than the, I mean, we see this all over, but it's more than the regular nurses make. And it ends with, this is just the, you know, most dystopian part of it is because it's a text blast. It ends with, respond with, in all caps, strike to deploy. And like, this whole weird modern method of strike breaking via technology is just so fucking disgusting. Yeah. Vote now with your phones on whether or not you want to come in and and replace these nurses for more money than we're even willing to fucking pay them. Mm -hmm. Right. And it's like everybody gets fucked in this situation too. Like it's not like there's like a good people would be like, oh, that's just the market providing. It's like these scab nurses, even if they accept the job, are going to be back out of a job in no fucking mm-hmm. time at all. So like nobody's fucking winning here except for the company that doesn't want to take care of its employees. Yeah, well, and I think that uh, one of the things that can actually, I mean, that can actually really be looked at is sure. Their uh, these wages are higher, but why are they higher? They're higher because workers are on strike. And if you right. really want those wages to go up even higher, we have to get rid of these strike breakers because they have the money. There's they say it right here. They've got six k uh, a week for these for these workers that should be just given out to the normal workers and if they right. need more nurses then yeah they can hire more but none of this scab shit like that that's the thing is like being a scab is not in your interest you are doing right. labor peace <laughs> yeah. you are driving your own future wages down by, yeah. By, yeah. by scabbing and the other thing is this whole thing every t- it's funny because you'll see companies do this even though it immediately puts the lie to their you know their cries of poverty about how they they all oh, we just can't afford all the the demands of the union meanwhile right. they point out in one of these articles that the ceo of this this hospital network is making 650k a year and his predecessor who was fired by the the Cook County Board of Commissioners at the end of 2019 got a half a million dollar severance package. So they're paying these management people, you know, these insane salaries. Every state in the country just got a gigantic windfall of federal funds from the the COVID relief bill, you know, and they're paying all these scabs more than they pay the regular workers every week. So there's absolutely nothing to their, you know, cries that they can't afford to to just, you know, give into the as always, yeah. incredibly minor and completely reasonable demands of the union. And and so I think it's it's great to see the labor unity between the nurses union and the SEIU local here. And I think that if we've seen, you know, <laughs> Anything as far as trends from unions in Chicago, I kind of don't think that this uh, these attempts by, you know, the Cook County to kind of stonewall these folks and try Mm. and put out this, you know, PR campaign that, oh, these are unreasonable. I don't really see that working very well. Uh, I I think these folks are going to be, you know, in the fight for the long haul. Yeah, well, definitely. Yeah, on the on the thought of unreasonable, 
Let's move to our next article, which is about using facial recognition to confirm whether or not people are themselves, and I mean that in that very literal sense, mm-hmm. are they themselves and while, that, while they're on unemployment. Now, uh, throughout the country, there are 21 different states that actually use a facial recognition technology that has consistently kicked people off of unemployment because of failures to match and all sorts of other sorts of technical issues, but more so is kind of defended as as a really important and successful technology. Now, we should know through every single example of facial recognition technology that we've ever seen, and it, I, don't, I don't even think we've covered a ton of them on this show, but if you've been informed politically at all, you'll know that facial recognition technology specifically is discriminate, specifically discriminates against people of color and women all the time and never has not it has always done it and there are not examples of anything otherwise yeah well and also just putting people's uh unemployment benefits you know their livelihood in a time where they're not able to work for whatever reason behind facial recognition technology is just a ridiculous thing to do in the first place the idea that like we have these technocratic solutions to like preventing you know unemployment fraud which is a negligible problem in the first place but the fact that we're just like, okay, now use this piece of technology that's guaranteed to fail like 60% of the time. Like, have you ever tried to unlock your phone with a fingerprint scanner or like a retina scanner? It doesn't fucking work. It's absolute fucking garbage. Yeah, I mean, I, I would say on average, like, I have to probably try like three times to get my fingerprint reader on my phone to mm-hmm. work most of the time. And it's the thing is with this story, like, I, I want to actually can I, can I can I interrupt real quick? Don't don't do that. Use a number code. The cops can make you put your thumbprint on your phone. They no, cannot I know make that, you, that you put your number code. <laughs> yeah, but you can just you can just delete the fingerprint if you're at an action. Right. Yeah. Okay. Well, I just wanted um, for for people who don't know, do, yes, use a yeah. use a number code because they can't make you give a number code. Yeah. If you, yeah, if you're at, if you're at an action, turn off any sort of biometrics to unlock your phone. Um, mm-hmm. But um, specifically here, I mean, like, we saw the second that Congress, you know, passed the pretty limited boost to unemployment benefits, which were extremely important, but obviously much less than what they should have been. And from the moment that was passed, you immediately started seeing throughout all the press, especially, you know, the business press, all of this stuff about, oh, well, we understand that it's important to make sure people are okay during this unprecedented times. But what about fraud? We're going to see so much fraud. We have to make sure we do something about all this fraud. And in the same way that you hear this shit with, you know, voter fraud, it it is a specter of something that does not exist. It, it, yep. Like, yes, I am sure there have been plenty of cases of unemployment fraud, and yet they are they are i can guarantee you i mean there's a there's a number in here that uh somebody could come up with from like the the department of labor estimated that it uncovered about 5.6 billion dollars in uh potentially fraudulent unemployment payments but which sounds like a gigantic doubt it fucking doubt it so that's the thing i'm sure that number from the the department of labor is already inflated but you compare that to the numbers being thrown around by the press and specifically those being thrown out by the CEO of the, this company, ID.me, that is, you know, behind all of this facial recognition technology. 
because he's been going on this company. (laughs) He's been going on this, this press blitz, you know, promoting how good his company is and how important it is because of the, the specter of all of this fraud, because he claims that unemployment fraud has cost the country a hundred billion dollars. Oh, wait, 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 wait. No, actually, no, 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 actually it was 200. Wait, no, no, no. I'm sorry. Actually it's $400 billion. Oh, damn. Uh, which which he called uh, quite quote quite possibly the largest theft of all time. Which I'm like, first of all, I wage point theft history. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> also, like, wage theft is bigger than that. Right. I'm like, you live in a stolen country built on stolen labor, <laughs> and you're calling a fake um, amount of you know extra unemployment benefits that somebody might have gotten during a global pandemic of, you know, money that you just printed <laughs> from the mint. Right. Uh, like, that that's the biggest theft of all time. Like, that's, it, it's insane to watch these narratives that the, the business media really yeah. tries to shove down our throats. Well, and if you really want to to dunk on it even more, un- unemployment is a misnomer because it's also for people who are underemployed, people who right. are right. not getting paid enough for what they're doing, which is, I'm going to throw this out there, literally everyone who's not a boss. Like, I think I, I think that we, if we need to, I mean, like, there's nothing wrong with supplementing your lost surplus value by taking it from the government. Right. And, right. Uh, I mean, like, that's part of what it's there for. It's there for underemployment, which, like, a lot of people are. And think about it, even before the pandemic, people were working two, three, two and three part-time jobs doing 60, 70 hours worth of work for basically what would have been a good 40-hour jobs worth of salary pre- Previously, right. uh, I mean, there that is that is wage theft, and uh, it it qualifies as underemployment, in my opinion. Yeah, it definitely. And then, what's been happening to these people who have been locked out of their unemployment uh, based off of ID me's facial recognition has been that sometimes they've had to wait days or even weeks for a quote unquote trusted referee to come along and confirm their identity. In California, 1.4 million unemployment beneficiary accounts were abruptly suspended on New Year's Eve, and the beneficiaries were required to re-verify their identity using ID.me, which a bunch of them found difficult, and resulted in some of them waiting for weeks to reactivate their accounts. And this is not this is not just limited to a few states. This has been happening consistently all over the country in a manner you know, which you would kind of expect from a piece of technology trying to do more than it's really prepared to do. Yeah, yeah, and and to what you were talking about before, Lena, about, you know, we have seen time and time again that these algorithmic structures, which, of course, you know, the tech companies love to tout as, oh, it's an algorithm. It can't be racist. It's like, well, who wrote the algorithm? Uh, But, like, we— Also, what technology is being used for the camera? Cameras are historically racist. Right. Yeah, that's true, Exactly. Um, And so—but don't worry— ID.me has a response to that, and they've said that, quote, the algorithms used for face match operate at approximately 99.9% efficacy. There is, in fact, no relationship between skin tone and face match failure on a one-to-one basis. And here's the important (laughs) part. According to a regression analysis performed by ID.me. I also love that he had to say there is no correlation on a one-to-one basis. It's like, oh, yeah, it's actually on a 1.1-to-one basis. <laughs> the algorithm's super racist, but it's not 100% racist. So there you well, go. Well, and it's, it's, all, it's one of those, no, no, we're not racist. 
trust us. <laughs> yeah, because <laughs> yeah, like they're just saying, no, we we analyzed ourselves and came out and 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 cleared ourselves of any bias yeah. of any kind. Racism probe launched by NYPD finds <laughs> NYPD you know innocent of all wrongdoing. Like, right. <laughs> and and I mean, this all obviously comes down to. The same thing that we see with this, you know, the reason you see people cry voter fraud is because they want to suppress votes. The reason you see these businesses out here talking about unemployment fraud is because they don't want people getting unemployment. They want people to be forced back into the workplace, whether it's safe or not, working whether for the they lower- Whether they can or not. Right. Working right. for the lowest possible wages so that, you know, there can't actually be any upward pressure on wages by workers, you know- having a modicum of breathing space to actually take a look and see like, you know, working myself to death for seven twenty five an hour is insane. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and, and that, and so they, these, these businesses are terrified that, that any amount, you know, of, of time for people to reflect on that is going to hurt their bottom line and their ability to, to hyper exploit them in the future. Yeah, absolutely. Well, and that's what any sort of means testing is designed for. It's designed to leave people to die. It's designed yeah. to be incredibly ableist. It's designed to uh, leave, like, I don't even know how to say it more so than leave people to die. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, it's supposed to leave them hanging. And like, I, you know, we were saying earlier, like, this is not just the case in California. Uh, this is also the case in Florida, North Carolina. Pennsylvania, Arizona, like this is happening all over the country. And, uh, you know, it's all basically to prevent a problem that's not real. This is the same as it's like you said, Dan, it's the same as the Republican outcry over voter fraud. Like there is no gigantic coalition of people going out and casting fraudulent votes, except for the very, you know, electoral. Uh, like, I believe that, you know, the, the Democrats and the Republicans try to rig elections, well, but I don't think that there's any like big group of like, you right. know, citizens out there like I'm going to cast 19 votes for Obama today. Like, <laughs> Another yeah. example is how they're trying to cut Medicaid, even though Medicaid is incredibly privatized right. and in a horrible system, there's so many, there's a huge pro percentage of people who are on Medicaid since the pandemic, and they're like, oh, well, there's no way that all of these people could be legitimately on this, this program, so we need to do extra cuts and more austerity. Uh, so, I mean, like, they will go through every single thing that helps poor people not die and try to cut those programs every time and then this is just an example right. of that using this facial recognition technology is actually just a bureaucratic way of being like oops sorry <laughs> you're all fucked yeah well because it it allows you know like you said the, the the bureaucrats that would otherwise have to deny somebody's claim themselves they can just say oh no 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 it's it's not me it's the algorithm you just right. push that responsibility off onto a supposedly neutral machine yeah, obfuscated by a, a second, a, a third party, but like also the company's a third party, and then to the company itself treats the algorithm like a third party to the company. <laughs> right. So the right. levels of of abstraction that exists there are are purely just to to obfuscate power and and, and responsibility. Yeah. Well, speaking of obfuscating responsibility, we want to talk about <laughs> another woke company, folks. We talked to you about No Evil Foods, and now we're ready to talk to you about a company called Gorillas that is apparently supposed to be the answer to many of the labor problems. They've kind of come along. They have a they have a labor peace solution 
for us. They want to <laughs> they, they yeah. be a gig company that uh, gives their workers benefits and treats them like employees. But despite their incredibly quick valuation to over a billion dollars, quote unquote, unicorn status, and uh, the fastest rise to that in German history for a startup... It seems like the company is still somehow mistreating its employees. I didn't think that that would be possible. <laughs> there was so much in this story that reminded me of all those insane glowing, uh, essentially just like dictated press releases that you would see from the business press in like the late 90s, early 2000s during the dot-com boom, where you'd have all this these glowing articles about how amazing it is to work at these tech companies like Google and Apple and, and all these other places because they're like, oh, they've got pinball machines in the break room and they've got like slides and ball pits. It's the best. It's barely like being at work. Which There's was, a hammock know, next to your desk. <laughs> right, yeah. It, it, it's all this shit. It's like you, you, you spend a small amount of money to create the illusion that your workplace is actually a great place to be to cover up for the exploitation that you're doing behind the scenes. And, and in, in this case, because we've talked about before a whole bunch of times, you know, how one of the biggest problems in the gig economy and, and, you know, core part to it is the misclassification of gig workers as independent contractors instead of actual employees. And right. so Gorillas, this company has been like, no, no, no. We're a gig company and we call our, our workers employees and we have, you know, all this cool shit at our, our facilities. So don't worry, we're not like all those really bad companies, <laughs> but it turns out that's not exactly true. <laughs> um, like these folks are, are out there, like you said, like No Evil Foods, they, they have spent a huge investment of their effort in creating this image while at the same time doing a lot of the same exploitative shit we've seen from other companies. The, so the specific example um, that is a big part of the reason that that workers there have recently gone on a wildcat strike, which is, uh, from reading the article, very rare in Germany, um, is because of the way that Gorillas uses a probationary period for its mm -hmm. workers. Uh, basically, if you've only worked there for six months or less – Gorillas can fire you for any reason, just like, you know, any country, any company in the U.S. can and pretty much at any time. But because of the folks that they're tr trying to hire and because of the way that they run their business model, the vast majority of their employees fit into that, you know, first six-month category. So – while touting the idea that, no, no, we treat our employees as employees and we have all these benefits, they've written in this loophole so that they can bring people in, exploit them as much as they want, and then fire them right before six months yep. without having to deal with, you know, unions or German labor law or any of that. And, and it just was one of the – it made me immediately think of, well, you know, one of the things reading in, in Detroit I Do Mind Dying about uh, one of the arrangements that the UAW had with – some of the big car manufacturers was exactly this where it within the first 90 days of a worker being hired, they could be fired for any reason. And so the big automakers would just do that. They would hire a shitload of people get to, you know, your 89th day on the job and then fire them so that yep. they wouldn't have to let them, you know, accrue union benefits, which would make it much more difficult to, to get rid of them. Yeah. Yep. Well, and, and another a couple way... of the other complaints from this uh, from the workers for this company is that they've been required to carry bags that are far too heavy, resulting in back strain and uh, back injuries. 
And they also went on a wildcat strike uh, in February when they were asked to deliver during Berlin's biggest snowstorm in a decade, despite unsafe streets. So it it is a lot of the very same stuff that you see with Uber and uh, DoorDash and stuff like that. Right. But in a more classic sense of how labor is exploited, there's also a very large division within the labor force at this uh, at gorillas where there are really you need to have your programmers because this is an app, a gig kind of thing. And then you also have your, your delivery people. Well, they've made kind of a point of being like, well, we treat our delivery people really well. Well, in the United States, it's kind of, you know, we see that they're not taken care of. But then you look at the programming jobs and people are making 150 and they're like really well-paid jobs well what this company has done is it has they have inverted that model and they obviously still are not even really paying the uh the delivery drivers as much as they probably should but the uh exploited group here is partially the programmers they are actually being incredibly underpaid they're just like well, you know, we've inverted the model. Now now the delivery drivers get the good benefits, and it's just the programmers who are forced to work long hours for very little pay. And, and this, this division is, is exactly something that is exacerbating the, these sorts of problems. Uh, and I know that when we're, this Wildcat strike is of the delivery uh, people, uh, but hopefully they get some sort of way of getting these software engineers and, and technicians in on this because those that is a uh, a market of 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 workers that is just doesn't have any rights you're actually there's a whole culture behind why as well as the the standard union busting stuff but but yeah i i think that uh just just trying to make it look like oh the person who's driving the bike that delivers your thing is actually making an okay wage and then that's where your brain kind of turns off in it or is supposed to and to not think well then what about all the people who are doing infrastructure and right well and you have and, workers who've who've worked there who've said that like management has deliberately tried to use the divide between tech and and like uh delivery and workers as a way of stoking sentiment against the delivery drivers who are asking for more. And, like, I don't know how the German labor law is structured, but, like, you know, the obvious solution to that is for the drivers to just call in the technicians and be like, you know, be be a part of our labor movement and we'll fight for your rights too. Absolutely. Right, and and so the the group that organized this wildcat strike the guerrillas workers collective mm-hmm. has been i mean it's from from reading this it is it is mostly you know the the riders that that form the bulk of, right. of the collective but they have been specifically making outreach issue like like um attempts to to bring in as many of the technical workers as they can for exactly the reason you're saying is that like obviously like it, those attempts to split the workers only make, you know, organizing either side even harder. And right. and this whole this big wildcat strike that they recently kicked off was specifically in response to the firing of a a writer at that six month probationary period that, that mm-hmm. was mentioned earlier that um, a, a writer named uh, Santiago was fired on June 9th. And within hours of his firing, the uh, guerrilla workers collective had shut, had sur- uh, shut down the facility, surrounded it, begun picketing. And then over the course of three days, they set off, you know, uh, sim- solidarity pickets at a whole bunch of guerrillas locations around Berlin. And of course, you know, you, you, you see the lie put to the progressive face that guerrillas management has been trying to put on their company immediately because 
of course, what do they do? It, do they come down and say, oh, hey, you know, we're sorry. We thought we were providing a good environment. We want to listen to your concerns. We want to improve things. You know, we, we, you know, trying to fulfill that supposed family environment bullshit they throw out there. No, their response was to call the fucking police and only back off later, you know, when they start getting bad PR for it. Right. So it, it's, again, it's, it's so much like that, that situation. I mean, no evil laying off their whole production staff at once. That's obviously, you know, worse, but there's, there's so many parallels here. And one of the things that I thought was really great about this Wildcat strike effort was that it's not just guerrillas employees that have taken part in it. Uh, once it started, once the campaign started to build delivery riders at several other companies, including uh, a company called uh, Lifrando, which I'm probably pronouncing wrong, but also uh, riders for uh, Domino's and United Private Hire Drivers, which is another, you know, delivery group in Berlin mm -hmm. have also picketed in solidarity with the guerrillas workers and they, the, the workers have come up with, you know, a slogan for their organizing efforts, which I really liked, which is, so the guerrillas company has, you know, one of these delivery in less than 10 minutes, you know, claims. Yeah. And so they've, they've, they've expropriated that for, well, we organize in less than 10 minutes. <laughs> and that's right. <laughs> We are, we're, they're yeah. so, so well organized that it, when something happens, an injury to one is an injury to all, and it, we go down, it goes down. Yeah. Respond to <laughs> yeah. it immediately. Well, and that's the thing. It's like, because that's, I think, one of the things to take away from this story is how important those boring, you know, organizing meetings, those one-on-one -on -one conversations you have with your fellow workers are, because if these workers hadn't already been doing this organizing work, they wouldn't have been able to, you know, get together all of these people and all of their allies within, you know, a couple hours notice of one of their coworkers being fired. And, and laying that groundwork has, has, you know, propelled them into a much more powerful response, which is basically, you know, forcing management back to the table. Right. Yeah, exactly. And they said that they finally got management to acknowledge some issues for the first time. Uh, including looking at the heavyweight of the backpacks. So, uh, and they also want to look at the warning system and the determination process. So, I mean, it goes to show, like, it, you as the workers really do have the power. Like, you can hold their feet to the fire, even if they're trying to do some really sneaky fucking shit, like uh, put people on a probationary period and then fire them as soon as it uh, is about to expire. Which is basically like having a mandatory turnover system, which is mm -hmm. well known right. by the company that we're going to cover in <laughs> our next article, which is... That's right, is this is the big one. Amazon. We are going mm -hmm. back. We have not actually touched Amazon in the last couple episodes, I don't think. And so they're a little overdue. And uh, lucky for us, the thing that we're covering is an announcement of a large campaign to unionize Amazon. Yeah, this is major league labor news. I was actually able to find resources for this in large mainstream United States press. I was... Uh, pretty glad to see it because it really does represent like a big change you can even see in the way that like cnn and msnbc report on this that like people are aware that the bessemer drive really stoked people's political uh, imagination for what it means to have control over your workplace and to use amazon as the main battleground for this is really just as appropriate as it gets 
Yeah, and when we were covering organizing efforts in the run-up to the Bamazon Drive, we had seen some stories coming out of the Teamsters where there was, you know, some rumblings of, you know, like, we're really hoping the that the Bessemer Drive succeeds, but we've also, you know, the, the Teamsters had been talking about how they'd been looking at, you know, a big plan to do this, but it hadn't, you know, come to fruition yet. And so last week was the uh, convention that the Teamsters hold every five years, you know, to to set their course, basically, you know, for the next half decade, really, on, on what their organizing is going to be focused around. I hesitate to call it a five-year plan, but <laughs> I, I would certainly like to. Right, right. <laughs> Uh, and at that meeting, the Teamsters representatives from, you know, the, their locals around both the U.S. and Canada voted overwhelmingly. It was something like 1,590 to like nine. Yeah, <laughs> so, I think so, it, the, it, they, they called it 99 to one in all the percentage <laughs> yeah. charts. Yeah, to, yeah to, to make organizing Amazon the primary focus of the Teamsters going forward, which is absolutely huge because like the Teamsters are like, you know, we, we mentioned before one of the biggest unions in the country and also because of their location within logistics, one of the inherently most powerful unions in the country. And and, and there's, we've got a bunch of good quotes in here from, from their national director of their Amazon project, Randy Corgan. And he started with Amazon presents a massive threat to working class communities and good jobs in the logistics industry. Amazon workers are calling for safer and better working conditions. And with today's resolution, we are activating the full force of our union to support them. The Teamsters will build the types of worker and community power necessary to take on one of the most powerful corporations in the world and win. Hell and yeah! I mean that fucking rocks. I I like that the the shift in language because there I think that there is a little bit of a, a a shift back to that classic CIO method that at least in rhetoric is starting to come up because so often for many many decades there was a lot of well we need to do do unions so that we can just negotiate so that we can find a, a, an amicable deal between the company and the workers. And the idea that uh, that the goal here is not that, and it is to build worker power, is a good sign. Yeah, that's yeah. a really big step. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, they have a, a, a another quote in here from Corgan who says, we have an intrinsic knowledge in the industry, we understand transportation and logistics companies that are only motivated by profit will make changes that always end in workers losing. There's been one unified organization for those workers, and that's been Teamsters members and the Teamsters union as a whole. And they mention in their description of, of how they plan to go about this, uh, one of the things, like, like to your point, uh, looking back to some older organizing techniques, because they referenced that the NLRB process that exists, as illustrated by the Bessemer Drive, is so heavily weighted in favor of the corporations, especially, you know, a, a behemoth like Amazon, that that is, you know, an enormous uphill battle and perhaps some other tactics ha- have to be done. And, and, and the, this uh, article from, from Vice about it mentions that they plan to focus on a series of pressure campaigns involving work stoppages, 
petitions and other collective action to push Amazon to recognize a union and bargain over working conditions without going through, you know, the standard NLRB election process. And they specifically reference back to the original formation of the Teamsters and the way that they organized their first members of horse drivers, grave haulers, and beer wagon drivers who, who, you know, this was all before nice. the NLRA was passed. So there was no yep. o- official election process for this. And so they, they did all this using shop floor strikes, citywide strikes, solidarity strikes, other mass collective actions. And the fact that at, even at the beginning of this project, they're already referring back to that, like that, I think would, that at least at the very least, like you said, rhetorically, at least we're already starting out like way ahead of, you know, what I've seen from a lot of, of big union drives recently. So right. I, I think that's great. Right, because this is also the organization speaking to the members, to the to the union workers, yeah. and to say this is our goal. This is the this is the what we're looking at. We're not looking at trying to find some deal that makes your boss happy. We're looking at something that makes your life like materially better. Right. Uh, and I, yeah, it matters a lot, especially just because the imagination of workers then is changed with that framework. They're not looking at like, well, we're just trying to make sure that we get along with the assistant managers or, and then, you know, maybe we can, you know, do one thing against the big boss or whatever. But like, no, this is this is not about them at all. This is about the workers. Yeah, and I mean, I think the Teamsters really have like a lot of on-the-ground experience with this. We talk a lot on this show about how like Amazon has been changing the way that standard practices are perceived in uh, logistics industries, all universally to the detriment of the workers. Uh, the way that health and safety practices, the way that you know uh, working hours are scheduled, pay uh, rates, everything is deteriorating. And, you know, whether the Teamsters members are directly involved in their work with Amazon or they're just adjacent to it, I don't think it's hard for somebody who's logistically minded to see these things firsthand. And you, you even see quotes from them, uh, like from Anthony Rosario, a UPS driver in Brooklyn and shop steward at Teamsters Local 804, who says quotas are going up astronomical figures. We've seen a massive increase in Amazon packages. Industry standards are being diminished that we fought for for decades. They're forcing people to work holidays and weekends. UPS is bending to Amazon's competition. Yeah, and and the other thing that that I thought was really interesting in this article like to your point about how like it's it's not like this is difficult for, you know, the you the regular union folks to, to see like it's, it's extremely apparent because they have there's quote after quote after quote in there from Teamsters members who have seen firsthand what working for Amazon has done to their friends, family members, you know, folks that they know who, who've gone through the, you know, the meat grinder mm-hmm. that is Amazon's workforce and compared it to, you know, their jobs that are obviously much more secure have much more, you know, reasonable pay and benefits purely through that collective action. And so like, that's, it's not a difficult connection you yeah. know, for the workers no. to make. It just reminds it me of for them to see. when we had someone in the Discord being like, when I listened to the work stoppage episode about how dangerous Amazon warehouses are while working in an Amazon warehouse. It's yeah. like, yeah, pe- people understand. Like, they they know how dangerous it is. Dangerous it is. Yeah, yeah the, absolutely. The other th- yeah, and I, I like that they also mentioned that they're like, so we're going to use all these collective tactics. And Vice was asking them, like, you know, oh, well, specifically, what are you going to do? And they mentioned in there that the teams are like, well, you know, well, we're keeping some of that under wraps because, <laughs> you'll you know, see. 
you'll all see that's for (laughs) us to know and you to see on the news like (laughs) yeah and i appreciated that they also point out like in here that they're not just you know coming up with a a template that's a one size fits all for every business that they're specifically trying to look at, you know, the conditions on the ground. They mentioned your quote from once again, from, you know, the director of their, their Amazon project. Uh, If Amazon workers are organizing independently, the Teamsters will help. If workers are not organizing, Teamsters will get it started. Our union has been the leading expert on how to create good career jobs and it's time Amazon workers know this. So like, I really like to see that understanding that like because as we've reported before there have been you know some groups like especially like amazonians united and like long island queens chicago that have been getting grassroots organizing campaigns off the ground and so the acknowledgement from the team series that they're they're you know they're not planning to come in and just you know steamroll existing uh organizing efforts and then that they want to work with those that exist and then build up new ones where they don't again i i it's, it's rhetoric at this point, but I think that they're starting off on the right foot with this analysis. I, I think it really shows that, that they've really taken to heart the efforts that folks like the, the folks at, at Bessemer and at, at other places around the country have experienced and then trying to apply the resources and history and, and, and just the, you know, the, the years of experience that all of these Teamsters workers have, how they can best apply that in the different places that they're going to be organizing. I think they're starting out on a great foot and I'm really excited to see what the Teamsters are going to do with this. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. It's very exciting news. And in one of our last segues, we're going to talk about starting off on a good foot at a McDonald's in France where where workers have uh, taken the initiative to seize a McDonald's. And I mean that close it, but then reopen it as a food bank uh the the quote in the article is is like when someone is driving through the drive-thru they're like oh i'm sorry this isn't a mcdonald's this is a food bank it was <laughs> like fuck yeah this actually was one of my favorite stories that i have read ever like this is so inspiring and i and i'm gonna i mean you'll see one photo in the uh in the cover art but like really encourage people to go out and check out some of these other photos because they're organizing food in the in the with the infrastructure if you've ever worked in a mcdonald's you see a lot of the similar pieces that that are in any mcdonald's uh here in the united states but like Mm -hmm. there a lot of it has been repurposed the the freezers and refrigerators are full of of like fresh produce and other sorts of like really important healthy foods and the drive through is just like working people coming through and getting some food it's just absolutely amazing uh yeah i, I don't know how to say much more besides like how awesome it is yeah i mean they just you know this is in marseille france uh they renamed it la pre m i assume i'm saying that wrong but it means after m uh, you know after mcdonald's and uh, even though the occupation is technically illegal, you know, the community has been hugely appreciating it. It's one of the areas of France with the highest poverty rates. Uh, so this is just like a really, really obviously unambiguously good thing that these people are doing. Uh, and it's cool that they uh, that they managed to pull this off after the owner of the franchise said that they were planning to sell the building in 2018. And even the city has come around and said that they will work with the people who occupy the building now to find a long-term use for the building. But I think that they should say like, how about you keep it a food bank? You know, like <laughs> pretty much <laughs> yeah. that. 
and there was a quote from one of the folks that, you know, has been involved in this, this organizing effort there that I, I, I mean, I, I think, you know, really emphasizes what they're doing. And it's, uh, like one of the helpers whose name was, uh, Uarda Gattucci, who has just basically said that like laying out what they're trying to do. They said, quote, they come without a smile, but they leave with one. And this is in a place where they point out in the article that 40% of the people are facing poverty mm-hmm. and, and so places like this, like this sort of direct action can make an enormous impact in a community facing, you know, that level of difficulty to the, to the, to the point where, you know, even the local city government, which is, you know, no matter which form of liberalism <laughs> is running it, is going to be, you know, beholden to the local business interests where even they are like, yeah, we're not going to shut this down. <laughs> mm-hmm. Like this is actually really good and really important. And I and the other thing though that was what that was really interesting to see from the organizers is they're basically like we're really glad to have the support of of city hall basically and and to get the support from the local government. But we're going to keep doing our own fundraising because they're un, like acknowledging the fact that, you know, shifts in bourgeois electoralism can change, you know, uh, the, how favorably the local government views this with basically the drop of a hat. And so they're not putting all of their eggs into depending on that, you know, local government and, and to continue to focus on those grassroots bottom up (laughs) direct action that got them to where they are now. And this is, yeah, this it's, it's one of the more, you know, heartwarming stories that we've gotten to cover on what otherwise is usually more bad news. (laughs) Mm -hmm. That's right. And speaking of heartwarming, <laughs> <laughs> it's meme, the meme review. Meme, everybody. meme review, yeah. <laughs> it, it's time to tell some funny jokes. Yeah, that's right. Uh, the first one's just from the Onion, which is like sometimes I feel bad still laughing at the Onion in 2021. They've kind of like waxed and waned in terms of how funny they are. This is a banger. The fact that they've really just been uh, going after the Biden administration has solidified my love for them. And it's just a photo of Biden, like looking at a contractor. He says, contractor informs Biden it'd be cheaper to just tear down U.S. and start over. Uh, I mean, honestly, you know, true. true. (laughs) Why even bother starting over? Just use the materials for a different project. Like, (laughs) Yeah. yeah, absolutely. Like there's it's like, oh, you got let's see, you got all this slavery and genocide over here you got all this extreme worker oppression and militarism over here we can't we can't do anything with this shit you got to throw this shit all that's right yeah and do something else (laughs) yeah uh the next one is actually one i i sent to my partner and he said and he got kind of sad because he he loves language so much and like and and all of the different ways in which it's either evolved and all that and i send it to him and it's this what's what it is is this Man, uh, by a by a um, the shore, just like a beach shore, uh, and he's labeled humanity. But he's he has a hammer in his hand. and He's putting nails in the sand right at the water's edge, uh, and the, the where the nails are in is language. And then the water is the inherently uh, in indescribable nature of the universe. Which I don't know. I I'm, you might actually need to to want to look at this a little bit to really get it to because it took me a second to actually figure out what this was saying was like it's just saying that language is is in like insufficient to actually describing what is what the universe is and and what any sort of you know 
form of nature is, but I just love it. It's just so yeah, good. Yeah. It's real, really real good. Jacques Derrida hours, real deconstruction. Uh, there is no outside text hours, you know? Uh. Uh, admittedly, half the reason that I like this meme is I really want to know the story behind the original photo. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I, I don't know. I, I feel like the, this guy is photoshopped onto this beach and the nails, probably. The nails oh, are photoshopped. Oh, you know, well, you're probably right. <laughs> yeah. a, there is an old video on YouTube, though, where a guy tries to nail jello to a tree. That has the same vibe as this, and oh, I don't, yeah. I don't know how well it holds up, but I might go check it out again yeah. after this episode. And, yeah, and so this next one I thought was a an excellent illustration of you know the stupid bullshit that we hear from all these restaurant owners, you know, bemoaning the fact that oh, why won't everyone come work for me for zero dollars an hour? Because it, this meme is it's. It's just a text box at the top that says, people, there are thousands of restaurants willing to hire. Why are people still collecting unemployment? And then it's me, clears throat and points below. And it's a picture of, it says, this is how a table left a tip for one of my servers. And it's somebody who has taken, you know, a couple of $1 bills, put them in a glass of water, inverted the glass of water onto the table so that when you pick it up, it's going to go everywhere. And surrounded the glass of water with ketchup. So if you try and slide the thing off the table, you're going to smear ketchup everywhere. And I think this is a perfect illustration of exactly why people don't want to put up with this bullshit for $7 an hour. Because, like, people will be like, oh, because I saw comments on this on, like, uh, a Facebook thing. It's like, oh, this is fake. I was like, have you ever been to a restaurant? Yeah, no, that's not fake. (laughs) Have you ever seen people get an idea to do something online? If you didn't think being a server or being a hostess or whatever for, like, brain-dead fucking boomers who still expect you to observe 1950 standards of social etiquette was bad, then, like, try dealing with all of the millennial and and Generation Z fucking le-epic internet Reddit bacon lords who come in and do all of this, like, flipping over a glass with the tip money in it to try and fuck with you like if you see somebody like if somebody did this to me my job i've never had this happen but i've also never really been a server i imagine i would immediately lose my job based on my reaction to it yeah <laughs> like i mean if especially if you could see them doing it i just Yuck, like yeah tip the glass over into their lap i yep. like i <laughs> i have so little patience for people these days and, yeah. and well not all i mean obviously nice people are, are nice i appreciate my comrades but there are some out there. Zero patience. I'm sorry. Yeah. Um, the speaking of zero patience, I guess the next one is a is a Smoky Bear meme. And uh, Smoky the, the Bear, just... the only the only uh, um, park ranger who is exempt from all cops are bastards. Maybe not. Maybe. A uh, <laughs> cab includes Smoky the Bear. Um. Right. Um, so the text on this one is. Good to have a shovel handy during this unprecedented heat wave and drought so that if you witness anyone lighting fireworks, you can quickly just snuff them right out. And any fire that they might have started as well. (laughs) (laughs) Because, you know, fireworks are not as cool as everyone says they are. This may be a controversial opinion to some people, but fireworks, not cool. I mean, I don't know. 
I, I think fireworks are cool, but I think you have to be responsible with them. Like, you know, recognize that you can't just light them off in any conditions. And like that there's a reason why, you know, bottle rockets that explode are more dangerous than the ones that don't. Not just because they could explode near somebody, but because that tiny explosion can start a brush fire if you fire them somewhere where they'll land before they explode. Well, and think you know? about all the sad puppies that get scared because they don't know what the fuck's going on. You know, that's true. I, I think that that's important. Then thinking about all of the shit lords throughout <laughs> the Internet and such, we've got this actually kind of interestingly like it, someone drew this. This is a, a, a unique uh, comic book strip, I'm, I think. Right. Or is this? Yeah. I mean, or is this repurposed? I think this is actually like an original work. I think it's original um, because it looks like the people that it's referencing like that it looks like Crowder and Cedar in the comic strip. Oh, okay. Uh, so, so the first one is this guy is sitting on the toilet in a, in a stall in a bathroom stall. Someone on the outside says debate me. And the person on the toilet is like, ah, who's there? Uh, then, you know, the guy peeking over the stall door saying it is I, your worst nightmare. Why are you afraid to engage with me? Let's talk about the issues. And the guy is now at the top-down camera angle, looking at him on the toilet. He says, get lost, you rando. Because, I mean, everybody's been in a topic where someone's like, yeah, but actually, or, or whatever sort of, and trying to invite you into their debate club, which you should always just decline that. Uh, but, but yeah, then the, the last panel is, there is no escape as the guy is, uh, who was on the toilet is now running away, being chased, uh, being pursued yeah, so th- by this fucking rando. This is supposed to be Steven Crowder and Sam Cedar, right? Cause Crowder has like repeatedly run away from Sam Cedar when he like kind of ambushed him asking him for a debate. And the whole internet has been like up in arms about like, you know, Oh, this is this is really worth our time, and like I think we should really take this guy Crowder to task. And it's like you know that when they have these debates, they both get paid a fucking honorarium, and then we all get to watch like because what's Sam Cedar from the Majority Report or something I like that? Know he's, people. I think so. Yeah, and he's just like you know he's a progressive. He's kind of further left. He's like a Bernie bro or whatever. But like I don't need to see yeah he's a million and one debate bro streams. You know, like I, I already know Stephen Crowder is a fuckhead. I don't think you're going to change anybody's mind by having him debate like some chapo light kind of figure. <laughs> I I liked my interpretation better, which was just like whenever you go in and someone tries to like. You know, you just like post a cab on a news article and someone's like, well, how would you like to debate about this or that thing? And just like, no, no, I usually actually just I just like post a string of memes and then uh, and then turn <laughs> off notifications. Um, <laughs> but yeah. Well, yeah, I mean, I I think that kind of just points to it where like, you know, Steven Crowder is obviously one of the lamest and most pathetic of these debate bros. Mm-hmm. And even when, you know, he's getting cornered into these, you know, somewhat amusing situations because he won't actually debate anyone. It still kind of ends up just bringing the whole discourse down because the whole fucking construct of doing debates like this is pointless and doesn't actually solve anything. It just ends up, yeah, being these like it's content. It's argue- a reality TV show. Yeah, yeah, well, it's just going to result in, like, 
you know, they're they're gonna talk for forty five minutes, and their closing arguments are gonna be like Sam Cedar's gonna be like Crowder is a racist, and Crowder will be like, I am a racist. And I'll be like, Thank <laughs> you for watching. Good night. You know, like that's uh, nobody needs that in their lives. Like, <laughs> yeah. Well, and I'm, the other thing is, I'm like, why would you need to debate Stephen Crowder to prove that he's an idiot? Like, you can just show <laughs> videos of Stephen Crowder, and yeah. So, like, I don't really know why you need to do the extra step. Yeah. Exactly. Well, that is the episode for today. Thank you all for listening. We are entirely listener-supported, so if you'd like to help us out, give us $5 on Patreon. There are some overtime episodes on there and more coming up soon. Uh, Join us in the Discord. Give us a five-star review on any uh, platform at all. Follow us on social media, especially John at Facebook Villain on Twitter. And then also listen to Beep Beep Lettuce and Red Game Table. Super good podcasts. Uh... Yeah, that that's all. Uh, <laughs> thanks for listening, and remember, labor peace is not in our interest. Save solidarity, solidarity for us. Solidarity. For us.